Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello, everyone. My name is Umar Hamid. I'm your host on the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategy, and advice on how you can become better, stronger, faster. Just before we get started, I've got a question for you. Do you have a negative voice inside your head? We all do, right? I'm going to help you remove that voice in under 30 days guaranteed. Not only remove it, but transform it. So instead of the voice that sabotages you, there's one that propels you to much higher levels of performance and success. There's a link in the show notes. Click on it to find out more. All right, let's get started. Hello, everyone, to another episode of the No Limit Selling Podcast. And today, I've got the privilege of having LK here with me. And one of the things LK did was he took a startup, him being employee number one, and exited at $45 million. That is a neat trick, my friend. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's go back to that uh, initial company. When did it go from idea to execution? So it's interesting. At the time, I was actually working for Monster when Monster was Monster. You know, yes. the Super Bowl commercial ads and all that in the late 90s. And uh, unfortunately, the CEO, Andy McKelvey, no longer with us, rest in peace, uh, was much more focused on building the world's biggest yacht than doing anything super creative. And I'd come up with this idea that at the time he had this intern to CEO concept. I was running a division where we did those really high end hard searches for companies. And I said, if we can do these, we can do everything. So I came up with this idea of why not outsource all of recruiting to a company that can do it better, faster, cheaper, with better capacity utilization than a corporate staff can. And so the target was really the, you know, if you think about the global 2000, right? Well, he didn't want to hear it. I took the idea to another company and they said, yes, we will fund that for 14 months. You have 14 months to make money. And uh, as employee one, I started building a team and voila, three years later, it became something amazing and eventually Ronstadt bought it. Brilliant. And it's, uh, there's so many places in that journey that you could have given up. Tell me about one of those uh, places where you were ready to give up, but somehow talked yourself out of it, that resiliency. Do you have one of those uh, that comes to mind? Oh, many, <laughs> many. Um, so we had a moment with one of our clients. I'm not going to name the client because it'll be embarrassing to them. Um, Bill Gates. Big, global big, big, big global company. We had, we'd written the contract, had the deal. We were actually operational. And the CHRO changed out and the new one came in and said, well, I want to add an assessment to the process. And I said, fine, let me analyze this. Now, to give you the scope, we were doing 15,000 hires a year for them. Wow. The candidate to hire ratio was about eight to one. And this 15 minute little assessment, then if you do the math, and let's just do easy math. Let's just pretend, you know, it was 10,000 extra, you know, 15 minute sections. Okay, that's that's 150. Yeah, it's, it's, it's many, many hours. And so what I had to, and by the way, that's just doing the assessment, not even setting up the assessment and then reading the assessment back to the person. So I basically said, it's going to create minimal 45 minutes of extra time per candidate for my team, which means I've got to add staff at that scale, at 15,000 hires a year. Well, she didn't want to do it. She said, oh, no, 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 this is easy. You can do this. And I said, well, unless your team does it and just gives us the feedback, I, I'm not going to do it. She says, well, I have no team because I outsource to you. I said, fine, 
here's what the incremental cost of this is. And by the way, I was doing it for cost. And we literally got into a battle of lawyers over the contract and the SOW. And um, I held my ground and was willing to give the client up, which eventually a year later we did. She, she conceded, but as soon as the, the contract was up for renewal, she basically fired us. Which, by the way, is so ironic because I was friends with the company that took over from us and their price point was higher than ours, but her ego was so big, she couldn't just say, you were right, LK, I was wrong. <laughs> so what's Sometimes you got to stand up to clients who don't be, you know, they aren't reasonable. Absolutely. And, but on the other side of the coin, from her point of view, and I'm mind reading here, that the sense of ego probably didn't come into the equation. That was the driver. But from her perspective, I suspect it was like being righteous or not understand. Like, how do we delude ourselves? Because I do it too, and you probably do it too, where we see the whole situation from a very narrow perspective, and somehow we're always the heroes of our own stories. That's so interesting because it's exactly what this practice I'm in now does. It leans into the idea that your perspective is only your perspective and that the best way to make the best decisions and become a better leader is deliberately gain other perspectives and be open to other perspectives. I was uh, working with this gentleman who uh, a sales guy for his company and I asked him, tell me what you sell. How do you tell customers? And it was the most laborious, horrible description of what they do. And it was like, okay. And the CEO for the company was very charismatic and articulate. I said, do me a favor, put on Chip's mask in your mind's eye and then tell me what you do. And instantly articulate, powerful representation of what they do. And it's like, he always knew it because Chip actually was not there, but somehow using that mask mind hack allowed him to articulate. So he already knew it, but he wasn't doing it. So what do you think is happening there inside someone when the knowledge is there, but their self-image creates a result that is not as powerful as it could be? Well, it's exactly what you talked about. We put on this armor and we're afraid to let the armor be open because we think that shows weakness. And in reality is it's keeping the armor on is the big weakness. Being vulnerable is the strength. And uh, you tell the story there about he couldn't tell the tight story about what the company did. I have a little conversation I have with every new client candidate that wants to come into my practice. And listen, I'm not for everybody and everybody's not for me, right? Here's what I tell them. I'm sitting at a bar and you're sitting next to me. And I turn to you and I ask, what is it you do? And what I'm actually looking for is do they share their cause with me mm -hmm. or do they share their elevator corporate speak with me? And I tell them if they give me the corporate elevator speak, I, I say, great. And I literally turn myself and now I'm turning to the other person at the bar because you're not interesting. Right. If you give me a cause. And by the way, if you can do it in seven words, even better. I'm interested. I will then ask the question, how do you do that? Absolutely. How and do you do that? So just going to dissecting that a little bit is when I'm being the person you want me to be and the elevator pitches that, how do we articulate what we do so the average dumbass understands it? <laughs> when we go with cause, we're revealing who we are. 
and yes. people can sense when you're being authentic and it creates immediate connection and attention. And when you're just saying, you know, we are for the betterment of the environment, our employees and our customers. It's like, <coughs> yeah, aren't, aren't we all? <laughs> and the other thing you mentioned was uh, transparency and being vulnerable. Uh, I was at a wedding a few years ago and uh, the priest that was, uh, there was like 300 and some odd people in the church. He comes on stage and says, I just want all of you to know that uh, the priest that was supposed to be here couldn't make it. So they asked me to do it. And I just graduated from school. I can't say the words on the tip of my tongue. Uh, mm -hmm. Seminary school. And right. I'm kind of nervous. And 300 people in the audience connected with him. He did a phenomenal job. And rather than being a weakness, it became a strength that people want to help and connect when there's transparency and when you try and be that uh, superhero, people just uh, look on. True. It's exact, exactly true. So, LK, have there been times in your career where you were actually being that guy, having the armor on? And when did you realize that was happening? And how did you convert to being more authentic? Because it doesn't happen overnight. Can you kind of share what went on there? Sadly, I think we still do it from time to time as much as we try not to. Mm -hmm. I do have the uh, epiphany story for you, though. Thank you. I, I'm a young leader, um, had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, uh, finished some schooling, went, went to this company that was growing like a weed. They had locked into the home center uh, channel when home centers were just starting to take off in the late 80s and early 90s. And I was promoted to run the Southeast. And as part of my promotion... Um, a year in, they did a 360 to see how I was doing. And the CEO, this little guy from Alabama named Jake Goza, who's one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked for, um, calls me killer. You know, obviously the last <laughs> name Kilstadia, so he calls me killer. He says, hey, killer. You know, little guy, big voice, right? Well, let's review this thing. And the thing that stuck out at me was a quote. LK is not as popular or liked as he thinks he is. <laughs> and I thought to myself, but I'm not trying to be popular or liked. I'm trying to run a business here. And that was a shield for myself. What I wasn't doing was accepting the fact that what was going on here is I had an aggrandized view of myself and how people viewed me as, well, of course people you know, want to be led by me because I'm fun and I'm charismatic and I'm all these things and we're crushing it, right? I wasn't in their world. I was all about me. It was all about Larry's, you know, LK success. It wasn't yeah. about the team and how the team is doing. And I wasn't leaning into a cause. And from there, I took a course in principle-centered leadership and it changed my world. Absolutely, because I think that's what the power is. And the cause, please feel free to uh, disagree with me. I think every single human being on planet Earth has a purpose in life. And once you uncover your purpose and you can get your cause to align with it, you become a force of nature. It's when you take on a cause that, you know, what's popular today is the saving the whales or doing this other kind of stuff. But the power of who we are as human beings is knowing your purpose, knowing your deepest values knowing what your fears are, and knowing that you can accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. 100% agree. 
Uh, one of my CEOs sums it up great. He has a personal mantra, and that is, leave it better than I found it. Yeah. Simple but telling, right? Leave it better than I found it. Because if you dig into that and you know, deconstruct that, it kind of uh, instant thought that came up was the book Good to Great. Mm-hmm where a lot of those leaders, when they left the organization, the culture was such that their trajectory on the stock market, as well as culture in the organization, transcended their tenure. Right. I mean, and that's the true mark of leadership, right? Is is what you did sustainable when you're not there. But so much of life is very much, it's about me. And there was a time in the world where I realized that the most important person in the entire world you'll be shocked, was actually me. And I truly, it may not have been a conscious thing, but at an unconscious level, it was ego-driven. And I saw the world from my very, very narrow point of view. And one of the epiphanies for me, it was, it's no. For me, for me, it's very much about the connection I can make with another human being. If I can create that connection in such a way that I provide them a safe place where they can reveal themselves, that is my highest value. That's my superpower is the ability to do that. And it's not about and them. It's not about me. It's about the connection that we create is is crucial for me. And that's beautiful, right? That's so beautiful. And I have a model for leadership I call the organizational champion model. And the way I started off with is a simple question. What is the number one filter that as a leader, every decision you make, has to go through and the answer is and i let them you know i'll let them twist in the wind and come up with their answer here but the answer i'm looking for is very simple is this good for the organization period writ large right and and if it isn't then i have to rethink the decision because it's not about my direct reports it's not about my team within the organization it's not about me that's the last thing it's about is it good for the organization that is what you want in leaders absolutely uh, and it kind of i'm going to go back to uh, you had mentioned you were part of the marines i was and so uh, what's kind of interesting is before you went to the marines i suspect you were a different human being till after boot camp and joining joining your platoon because i think what happens i'm just kind of uh giving you my point of view is that you go from it's all about me to the platoon and all of a sudden the platoon is more important than you and you would do heroic things for your brothers and sisters in arm more so than you do for yourself. Uh, right. What's that transition like and, for you and, going from and it's individual it, to yeah. team? So my transition there was a little different than the, the what you were just describing because I actually went to Annapolis and uh, spent four years at the Naval Academy and graduated nice. and, and chose Marine Corps as my service selection. You can choose, you know, Navy or Marines, and I chose Marines. Um, you learned the lesson you just described actually during what they call plebe summer at the Naval Academy, where they basically create this environment where you cannot succeed without helping each other. With, and that's the exact same thing you're talking about. Boot camp does the same thing. It breaks you down as an individual to go to the greater good of the entire team, right? And one of the things that, if you look at the Marines, the way they lead people, it's always the Marine comes first. So if you go to a Marine Corps meal and you're in the mess hall, the junior guys eat first. Yep. The general goes to the back of the line. 
Private walks in, he goes to the front of the line. It's serving the Marines first. When you go to the field, you take care of your Marines bivouacking first, not yourself. And that to me was what leadership is all about. You know, I tell people all the time when you, you know, we talk about what's your cause. I say, it's so funny, you know, think about a two word phrase in a dead language that the Marine Corps has as their cause. Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Yeah. And Everybody knows it. It's it's always faithful. Yep. Always faithful. Well, always faithful to what? Well, the core, your country, yourself, your platoon. It's always faithful. So here we go. We have one of the most famous causes in the world that almost everybody knows the Marine Corps Semper Fi slogan. Most people actually don't know what it means. Yep. But they but they know it. And believe me, all the Marines know it. Simple is so great. And I know a lot of Marines, and uh, there's a company called Metafast, and the owner of that company passed away, but he was a Marine. But if he saw a Marine in need, a homeless person, whatever, it was his duty to help. And he did it uh, mm -hmm. without acknowledgement. It was just uh, part of who he is and duty. And I think, and maybe I'm wrong here, Marines tend to believe it. It's ingrained in their heart more so than some of the other armed forces. Well... I think that's 100%. And I will give a tip of the hat to a couple other areas in, in the armed forces. I think there's that same thing in the Army Rangers, and I think you see the same thing in Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. The secret that the Marines figured out was, remember, those are just little groups within a big organization. The Marines figured out how to make the whole organization be that tight. That's a trick. By the way, I hate the uh, SEALs, and I'll tell you why I hate those guys. <laughs> okay. I've been to El Coronado. And when the Marines go jogging by, my wife was not looking at me anymore. She was looking yeah. at them. So Yeah, those SEALs are in some kind of shape, aren't they? They are. And so you've got a sense of what leadership is. Mm -hmm. So here's my theory on leadership. And then we'll uh, kind of navigate into Vistage because I think you knowing sure. it and you transplanting it in other CEOs to get them to execute as well is a magic trick we need to talk about. But very much, you know, for a leader, I think in basic terms, it's having a compelling vision that inspires people to move beyond their limitations and fears and go, you know what, okay, this is a, a fight worth doing. I want to make that happen. Second yeah. thing is building a culture where people put the organization before themselves. And that kind of uh, goes up against the grain of what who human beings are. Oftentimes, it's all about us and each <laughs> Yeah. And then the third, yeah. uh, third thing is long-term shareholder value. How do we create this organization that's more valuable? So, A, would you agree that's a half-decent uh, definition of leadership? And what would you add to it or subtract? So I'm going to give a simple definition. And unfortunately, I really hate this. It's a West Point guy that came up with it. So... Darn those army guys. <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. The art of leadership is getting people to want to do what must be done. Yeah. And I love that for so many reasons. First of all, leadership is an art. It was a science. Everybody could figure it out. It's an art. Getting people to want to do, getting people to go all in. But more importantly, of everything, you have to define what must be done as a leader because it has to be want to do what must be done. So therefore, job one for the leader is define what must be done. I call it in my organizational champion model, it's the set expectations phase. 
Yep. Clarity, clear. And by the way, Simon Sinek and I disagree here. He says, oh, you start with a Y. Well, I will argue with him, even in his TED talk, the computer sat there. The what existed before he went to the why. Yep. So I say you start with what, then you explain the why, and then you have to get into the how. And it just goes to what you just said. Simon Sinek is total genius, but I also think having a slogan and a why for the organization is meaningless unless you can imprint it in people's hearts. And that oh, is sure. what leadership is about. And, you know, thinking differently, I'm not sure every single Apple employee agreed with that. They certainly thought it was cool. So right now you're dealing with CEOs that have uh, the issues that they're dealing with. And then you say, okay, you know, here is a structure to help you become the best person you can be. So you can lead your organization right. in that way. But a lot of people yes. are going to say, okay, you just don't understand. So how do you uh, transcend that from what they know to what they need to know? Well, so first of all, it's awareness, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, it's, it's awareness. And if you don't have awareness, you can't fix anything. Right. So therefore, you have to start with awareness, right? And if you don't have awareness, is that called underawareness? No, probably not. <laughs> it's so it's, um, it's always the starting point. If, if I don't know where I'm starting from, you're lost. I can't get to the journey. You know, it's, it's the North star, right? It's still the North star. You're still going to the North star, but I got I have to know where I'm starting from Absolutely. to be able to lead the people to get there. And I just did this, uh, retreat for a leadership team. And it was really interesting when I did the, what's your expectation for each of the leaders in the room. So there's, you know, the C-suite for this company is eight people. And, uh, one of the leaders said, I want to walk out of this meeting with true North. And I love that. Yeah. He, you know, let's walk out of our meetings with true north. Absolutely. But I think that the initial thing you said, you know, can be lost. And I literally uh, meant to say that is when you don't know where you are, it doesn't make a difference if you know the North Star. And I think you articulated that. And I think people mm -hmm. lose sight of we have a notion of where we are and we have a reality of where we are. So how do you get people to really take a look at? Oh my God, we're actually over here and not there. <laughs> so I have a phrase and it's, it's, I call it life principle. Number one, accept reality as it is. And sometimes this is really hard for CEOs because what happens to a CEO? Everybody tells them what they want to hear. It's really tough to find an organization where people speak truth to power. Absolutely. So the CEO thinks I have this bright, shiny, beautiful object. And the reality is it's a little dusty, it's a little tarnished, and it might have a dent or two in it. Accept reality as it is. I was doing a leadership retreat and we're discussing some real issues. And the CEO's like, come on, can we move on? I'm getting a headache. And then one of the people goes <laughs> in his executive team, you always do that. Whenever we get to something uncomfortable, you get a headache and we need to move on. And I don't think the CEO knew he did that because oftentimes we're blind to our own uh, behaviors. But it was like a breakthrough moment for that retreat because in the past people would have gone, okay, let's pull back and let's talk. Because we need to talk about the real issues. And a lot of times that's way uncomfortable because I was really shocked to find out I'm not as good looking as I think. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> no, I got it. I got it. <laughs> It's uh, 
how do you how do you tell the CEO their baby isn't beautiful, right? Yeah. Well, you can't. They have they you have to ask questions to get them to see it. They have to come to the reality. They have to accept it. And that is the art you bring to the table is what's amazing is this. What I love intention. It's like so powerful because I could say something really rude to you, okay, right now. And my, if my intent was noble, that you would take it in a totally different way than if my intent was uh, to be like a, a bad actor. And oftentimes when, when you gather a leadership team and you ask those really tough questions, your intent is so critically important because if it isn't quite right or it is perceived not right, it can set a team back really, really far. But if it's taken right, people actually look within and answer. So how do you, because your CEOs need to do that with their charges, how do you teach them that? Socratic method. It's, it's always about asking questions. Yeah. If they come to it themselves, it's different than if I give them the answer. That's true. If I just tell them, here's, here's your solution. So I have to lead them through questions to see and get perspective. Because that's so, the only way they're going to own it. So let me push back on that just a little bit. Sure. Oftentimes I've seen in leadership teams, sometimes questions are used like weapons, where the question isn't designed to illuminate, is designed to spotlight where you're screwing up. And so asking questions with the right intent allows people not to take become defensive and actually see it. And that is art. And I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Right. How best to do that? I come at it from a very heartfelt, I want to make connection, but I'm not sure I can teach that so easily to other people or that they'd want to learn in the first place. So here's, here's what happens is they have to think and know that you care, that you're doing this out of an, uh, out of a good outcome. Nice. Mm-hmm. You know, this, your, your whole, your whole idea is to have a good outcome. So in Vistage, we have a term for that and we call it care frontation, Right. I care, so I'm going to confront the situation. I'm going to ask questions because we all need clarity and we all need to make sure we're going down the right path. So let's let's really dig in and gain all the perspective we can gain. I, I often coach the CEOs when they have someone on their C-suite who's always the devil's advocate. Right. Don't allow that person to be a devil's advocate by just challenging and saying, here are all the obstacles. It's as soon as that person pipes up, they now own it. All right, so how do you overcome it? You own the solution. You own the solution. And making them paint outcomes before they give obstacles is a great secret sauce for getting people to buy in better. Because anybody can be, and I hate, you know, I'm not trying to be glib here, but anybody can be a devil's advocate. It's easy to see obstacles. It's hard to see how to overcome them. I was watching, I'm not sure if you ever saw this movie, The History of the World Part 1, Mel Gibson. No, Mel Brooks. Oh, yes. It's a certain comedy, but there was this one scene that I love. It's a caveman, and he uses a stick from the fire to draw something on the cave wall. And he goes, world's Uh first artist. There's a guy on a boulder looking at it. And he uh, lifts his fur loincloth up and urinates on the art and goes, world's first critic. Because oh. it's so easy to criticize, but I, I really like outcome first 
And I did an interview earlier on today, and the gentleman had uh, described this. I said, you know, what's some advice you can give leaders? He goes, stay humble, stay hungry. And I like that humble part first, because that's all about, mm -hmm. it's not about me, it's about the organization that we're building. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned from Vistage, helping CEOs do better? Uh, when we teach, we also learn. What's one lesson you want to share with our uh, viewers and listeners? It's never about the answers. It's always about the questions. Love it. And is there a book you would recommend that they read? Oh, interesting. I think Jim Collins' latest book, which is um, um, Entrepreneur 2.0. Interesting. Um, it, is, it, is, it is basically his greatest hits, all in one book. And it is an amazing read. And there's just life lesson after life lessons, leadership lesson after leadership lesson. By the way, that's where I saw the definition of leadership was in that book. Oh, brilliant. He says, here's, the, here's Eisenhower's. He's big, big, big on what's your cause. He always talks about levels of leadership. And he has this thing about leadership level five, which is it's never about me. It's always about the cause. Oh, just absolutely. like you just said. Brilliant. And I'll recommend a book to you if you've not read it. It's uh, Will Smith's biography. Oh. I'm just starting that. And it's just uh, one of the things that he's always said uh, is there's way better actors than me in Hollywood, but no one's ever going to outwork me. And you wow. kind of figure out where that came from, his kind of upbringing. It was like totally brilliant. Yep. LK, thank you so much for being on the show. I learned a lot, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm looking forward to our next. You bet. Thank you so much. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 